The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. More information about the church is available at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Are you one of those people who always wakes up with a smile on your face? You can't wait to start the day and get going, excited about what may happen? Sometimes we may be perplexed by the verse in Psalm 30, verse 5, which was actually mentioned in our songs this morning. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. However, the idea of joy after nighttime of sorrow is a very important biblical theme. Uh, We have it right here in our passage this morning. In fact, in verse 20, Jesus was saying to the disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. And then he goes on in verse 21 to make the analogy of the birth of a baby. Now, I can remember when our son was born, our firstborn, and I remember that all those fancy drugs to kill pain weren't working. And uh, there was all kinds of pain and anguish and frustrating uh, delivery that went on for hours and hours. And I've never seen a woman spit an ice cube through the wall, put a dent in the wall from 20 feet. No, I'm just kidding. I'll hear about that later. But the anguish and the pain and everything that goes with it is so excruciating. And I remember that it was so hard for the last couple of hours that after Brent was born, Marilyn was seeing double for a period of time. And I can remember bringing him over to her and saying, look, look. And she raised her head and went, twins? No joke. True story. But it's just, it's an amazing anguish. But when you see the child, the pain is forgotten. And it's amazing. In fact, I remember a few years later when we decided to have another child. And I'm going, you sure? Because I was there. You really want to do this? But it's that joy. And what Jesus is trying to make clear to these disciples is, you're going to experience pain. You're in the world. The world is a tough place. And our separation is going to cause pain. And in general terms, we understand what this means. It means that for a Christian, sorrow endures for just a little time and then is replaced by a joy that no one can take away. But when we study this passage, we're soon perplexed because there are several ways to take this statement. So now we find ourselves maybe being like the disciples and wondering, just what did he really mean here? And so we are echoing what the disciples said in verse 18. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Now, as we look at this, I suppose his ambiguity is intentional. It's not that the Lord is vague in his teaching. He always makes his point very clear. But it's rather by means of ambiguity, there are several applications that we can bring here. So what I want us to do is let's look at the ambiguity identified. And first of all, it refers to his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, this is the first and most obvious interpretation simply because Christ is here speaking to his disciples, trying to comfort them and let them know that he is about to be arrested and taken. They are going to sorrow. 
But he wishes to show them that very soon, following the resurrection, this sorrow is going to turn to amazing joy. Now, you have to put yourself in the disciples' place here because this is all new to them. You and I have the ability to read the scriptures and put it in order and follow what happens. But this is new to them. They they don't know about this stuff. They don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, guiding them into all truth yet. And so they're trying to make heads of tails. Three years of amazing joy, seeing miracle after miracle after miracle, and now he's going away. They've left their careers. Peter left his fishing boat. Matthew left his practice. Where do they go now? And so there's a deep struggle. Jesus has already talked along these lines. For example, in John chapter 13, the Lord had been talking about glorification, and he said in verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. So this refers to the exaltation to heaven by his crucifixion, death, resurrection, and ascension. But it's immediately followed by the words in verse 33, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now Peter understood the little while part, But Peter said in verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. So you can understand these poor guys trying to make heads or tails of this. What do you mean you're going away? How long are you going to be gone? What's this all about? Now, when we take the passage in this sense, we recognize that this was precisely the experience of these early disciples. Jesus was their friend. They had loved him and watched miracle after miracle after miracle for three years. And Jesus loved them, but he was suddenly to be taken away from them. They were plunged into despondency and near disillusionment. They were struggling because they were not yet looking through the eyes of faith, led by the Holy Spirit to guide them. They were looking through human eyes, and Jesus' teaching was quickly moving to the back of their minds and hearts. And all they could think of was, he's leaving. Why? Where are you going? There may be reasons to sorrow. First, they sorrowed because of their personal loss. They were attached to him, and he was gone. Gone forever, so they thought. They had given up everything to follow him. What are they going to do now? Next, they sorrowed because of the world's attitude towards Christ's followers. Verse 20 said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. In other words, the sorrow of the disciples would be intensified because the world around him is glad he's gone. No more conviction, no more worry, no more good, good riddance, he's out of here. And they're trying to find out how to respond. Today, the world loves it when some high-profiled evangelical falls. 
To them, it's proof that either God doesn't exist or at least he sure doesn't care. Next, they sorrowed because of just disappointment. Every time we catch a glimpse into what they were thinking about during the sin term, we are impressed about their disappointment and sorrow. There's a, a, a story about the Emmaus disciples. They were on their way home after the crucifixion, and Jesus had risen from the grave, and he stopped them. They didn't know who he was, and he asked, why are you so downcast? And they told him about Jesus explaining how he had been crucified by the leaders of the people. And then they utter what is certainly one of the most poignant parts of Scripture. In Luke chapter 24, verse 21, it's recorded, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They had placed so much hope that he was the one. And now he's been crucified. It's, they continued, yes, and besides this, it's now the third day. So he's dead. He's been in the grave three days. Their hopes had been completely crushed. You know, some Christians today put so much hope in the reality of salvation that when troubles come, they become disillusioned. I thought he was going to solve all my problems. I thought he was going to make life good. And when it doesn't happen, they fall into doubt and despondency. But the Bible makes it very clear that while you're in this world, you will have trials and tribulations. It's part of the curse. It's part of what we live through. But God, in his mercy, raised him from the grave. And these men had not seen yet this yet. The disappointment continues even with Thomas in John 20, verse 25. He said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And none of the disciples believe. In fact, how do you believe? They don't know of people coming back from the grave unless Jesus is the one who's raising them and he's the one that's dead. They're in complete despondency. What do we do? The disciples experienced acute sorrow because of their loss and also because of the joy of the world, the way they were acting towards it, and because of complete disappointment. But then the resurrection. And their sorrow is turned to joy like a mother birthing a child. And it will be that way someday for you and I either by the rapture or by death, when we see him face to face. And all the pains of earth and all the pains of all the suffering will immediately be wiped away. Joy comes in the morning. Secondly, I think it refers to the church age. These verses should be referred to Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit for the church age. And this is not reading something into this because it is suggested to us by the context. In the first part of this chapter, the Lord has been talking about the Holy Spirit. He talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, first in the world, bringing some to faith in Christ, convicting them of sin and righteousness and judgment in verses 7 through 11. And then also to the apostles in the special sense and that they might become vehicles in the New Testament revelation as they remembered, understood, interpreted, and recorded what Jesus had done for them in verses 12 through 15. 
these verses end by saying that when the Holy Spirit comes, he is not going to speak of himself, but rather he's going to speak of Jesus and make him known. So we see in this context, we naturally think of the church age in which the Holy Spirit makes the Lord Jesus visible to Christian people. Not physically, but spiritually as he reveals the Lord in us through the pages of the Word of God. There must be a personal interaction with the Lord that brings us face to face to the holiness and that causes us to turn from sin in order that we might follow his way. He convicts us of sin, and he encourages us to be, with his, to be his witnesses in this present age. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. Now, I'm sure this is what the writers of Hebrews was talking about. In the, in the uh, 12th chapter, he talks about looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, he records the hall of fame of, of Christians. He tells stories about men in the, and women in the Old Testament and the New Testament and how they radiated Christ, how they believed in him who was invisible, how they trusted him. They were the witnesses out of Scripture. And then there are those around us today who walk with the Lord, and we see in their lives how God blesses and leads and picks them up and trusts them, gets them through. I experienced this yesterday when I had the chance to go see Russ, who, who is suffering in the hospital with cellulitis and kidneys that aren't working. And I asked him how he was doing, and he just shared his faith in Christ. God is in control. He's in control. And so we see continued in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so close, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. When you realize what has been done for you, when you realize that that Savior went to the cross, died to pay the price for your sins, how can we any longer be wrapped up in this world? How can we any longer be tied down with the pains and the sufferings of this world? They're going to be there. That's part of the curse. That's part of what's going to be here. But when you trust Christ every day and yield to him, he gets you through. And that's what they're saying. Consider all these witnesses. Consider all these people who have laid their lives before you. Watch how they walked. Watch how they trusted as seeing him who is invisible. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, there's that word joy again, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus, when he took on him our sins, God the Father couldn't look at him. There can be no sin in the presence of God. So you understand when Jesus, God, left heaven to be born of a virgin, to walk this life and eventually die, he hung on that cross and took upon him the sins of all the world, past, present, and future. And as he hung there, his heavenly father 
turned his back and let him die. You want to talk about mega love? When the creator dies for the created? I mean, in our way of thinking, wipe them away. Start over. Take the clay, start, you know. You ever made little clay kids when you were a child? You make little stick figures and they weren't right. You just crunched them up and started over. Why not? But when God created you, he loved you from the beginning. And he came and let his life be taken from him for you. It is a love that goes beyond yours and my ability to understand because it's a godly love. That's what he did for you and I. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, understand that that Savior loves you and he's calling you to come and experience all the love that only he can give. So he endured this cross for the joy. A mother endures the excruciating pain of childbirth for the joy of birthing a child. And Jesus endured the excruciating pain of hanging for hours on the cross with nails and thorns and bleeding and worst of all, separation from his father for the joy that was coming in the morning. Because three days later, when he arose from the grave, he forever defeated sin. And he is offering that to you this morning. Child, why continue to struggle? Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, because my burden is light. You can carry a million pounds as long as it's one inch off your shoulder. And Jesus is saying, you know that struggle you're going through? You know that pain you're enduring? You know that frustration and all those health problems and all the the people that attack you and and the bad relations? All that stuff, I'll carry it for you. Just put it on me. Accept me and walk with me. And that's what he's saying. We have a cloud of witnesses all through Scripture and friends we know who have done just that. And they have gone before us triumphantly in Christ Jesus. So if being aware of Jesus is to turn sorrow into joy in this present age, it must be based first on a study of the Word of God and second upon a deliberate turning away from anything that would hinder that relationship. So when we talk along these lines, it's impossible not to think of Paul in the book of Philippians because, as you know, Paul was a persecutor of the the Christians. And it wasn't until he was struck down on that Damascus road and the Spirit said, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? And he gloriously saved him. And Paul has already talked about, about, um, in the third chapter, what it meant to be a Christian. But now he puts it all together. And in Philippians 3, verses 13 through 14, he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But the one thing I do, now get this, and all of you who are struggling, get this, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead, 
I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call in God in Christ Jesus. You can't be good enough for God. So he's saying, look, just let it go. Let it go. And trust me. And that's what Paul had to do. This Pharisee of Pharisees, this most intellectual man of the, of the time, he had to let it all go for the excellency of Christ. And he says, forgetting it all, I now press, press to be what God wants me to be. I press to live for him because that's my joy. And you and I can do the same thing. Jesus is coming again. And if you have believed that he died to pay for your sins and you have repented of your unbelief, he is coming for you. And you can hang your hat on that whenever the days get long and the nights get longer. That no matter what this world throws on you, you accept him and you are sealed until the day of redemption. And no man can pluck you out of the Father's hand. Oh, skeptics are going to say, yeah, but where is he? I mean, it's 2,000 years ago. He's still not here. In fact, Peter mentioned in 2 Peter 3, verse 4, he said, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Like, sure, you, you, your God's coming from you? Uh-huh. Okay. It's been a long time. Been a long time. They may say to you, okay, let, let, let me get this straight. You believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? And and, and let me get this straight. You believe that he grew up completely sinless? And, 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 And then you believe he died and paid for all your sins? And now you're telling me he's coming back for you? Uh huh. Wanna come? Yeah. That's what he said. To the world, it sounds so strange. It sounds crazy. But when the Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit, you know that Jesus Christ gave his life to pay for your sins. He's coming for you and me. Our present state is temporary. But you ever notice how when you get older, time seems to go by faster? I mean... I remember one time I was six years old because my mother told me that's what I was. And I was driving her crazy because I was so bored. And she said to me, she said, look, Craig, just enjoy it because the older you get, the faster time will go. And I never forgot that. But you know what else I know? An hour still has 60 minutes. Day still has 24 hours. A week still has seven days. But boy, does it seem to go by fast. Why is that? Because the older you and I get, we gain a better perspective of how short life is. You may be here this morning, and you're carrying a heavy load. When you trust Christ, I can tell you on the authority of the Scripture, because I've read the end, it will be over. And you will be with Him forever. That is the amazing joy that we have. Joy will come faster than you think. The phrase, a little while, is mentioned seven times just in this passage. And Jesus is saying, look, guys, it's going to get bad. 
you're going to be disappointed. You're going to hurt. You're going to say, where's Jesus when I have my problems? Where is he? But he says, it's just a little while. I'm coming for you. And he's coming for you and I. So are you identified here? We see this laid out for us, but where do we fit in? Are you a part of the family of God? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? There are only two kinds of people in the world, saved and unsaved, going to heaven and not going to heaven. And you may be here, and you're saved. You've accepted Christ. You've acknowledged that you didn't believe. You've acknowledged you're a sinner, and you've accepted his death as payment for your sins, and you've given your life to Christ. But that doesn't make life easy. And sometimes we grow weary in our faith. But you can trust him. You can cast your cares upon him. But you may be here, and you may have heard the story. Come Palm Sunday and Easter, people come to church. It's what you do. But you've never understood why. Could it be that Jesus has drawn you through circumstances, through neighbors, through a loving friend, through a child, to bring you to the place where the Spirit can break down the barriers and say, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Rest for your soul. Rest for eternity. The rest that only comes when you know no matter what happens in this life, I've got him to look forward to. And not only that, by his Spirit, he immediately dwells within us to guide us into all truth. That is the offer this morning. And if you're here and you've never trusted Christ, why not today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this amazing story. We know how these disciples just struggled at this time. They were learning just like everyone else is learning. They didn't know everything. But when Jesus rose from the grave. Their doubts and fears were gone forever. And Lord, there may be people here this morning who have so much doubt and fear that they're looking for someone to help them break through that barrier this morning, break through that crusted hard heart and show them that you love them with a cross, that you paid for every sin, every struggle, every mistake. You wiped it as far as the east is from the west if they'll accept you as their savior. And while I'm praying with eyes closed and every head bowed, is there someone here, we'll not, never call you out, but if there's someone here, will you just raise your hand and say, I need Jesus. Would you just slip it up wherever you are? so I can pray for you, not by name, anyone. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. Oh, Father. 
you see the heart. Draw those people to you, Lord, who've raised their hand. Give them the peace that passes all understanding by knowing all they do, all they need to do, is trust you as their Savior. Repent of their unbelief, and you will save them, and your Spirit will come to indwell them. I pray you would encourage them, Lord. Help them come to us after the service and Perhaps we can show them, answer questions that they don't know. But continue to work in the hearts of those that raise their hands. And then, Father, for Christians who just need to trust more, liberate them this Easter season. May they be able to walk in the power of your spirit and not the power of fear. May they trust you completely for the glory that is in Christ Jesus. All God's people said, Amen. God bless.